Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Rufio, Rufio, Rufi! In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 89, Hook. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, you are very welcome, uh, whether you're a returning listener or a brand new listener, uh, hello and welcome or welcome back to Verbal Diorama. Uh, you are all, every single one of you, completely bangerang as far as I'm concerned. I hope you're all continuing to keep well. Um, and most importantly, you've clearly managed to navigate the second star to the right and straight on till morning to get to this episode okay, because you're obviously listening to me. So yeah, very happy that you're here and really, really excited to be talking about Hook. Um, but before I do, uh, I wanted to thank everyone for the amazing feedback for the episode on Josie and the Pussycats, which basically was a bit of a download smash, actually. Uh, and it basically went on to do really, really splendidly. Um, and um, yeah, just to basically remind people that I'm also going to be working on a brand new podcast called Rotoscoperama, which is going to focus solely on animated movies. You might have figured from this podcast that I'm a big fan of stuff that came out kind of towards the late 80s, early 90s, late 90s, that sort of era, um, because that was really the era that I kind of grew up in and I really started to appreciate movies in, in that era. And obviously, you know, I'm going to be talking today about a movie from 1991, Hook, obviously, which I think is honestly brilliant. Um, I absolutely love Hook, despite its problems. But, you know, I've, I've kind of always said in this podcast that I'm a big believer in you love what you love. Um, but it turns out not many people actually agree with me on my love for Hook. Not even Steven Spielberg agrees with me because this is the movie that he hates the most of, of the movies that he's done. And usually, you know, me and Steven, we always agree on these things. But anyway, here is a trailer for Hook and more on the other side of this.
revenge. Only you can save your children. You must make yourself remember. Remember what? Peter, don't you know who you are? Have to fly. Have to fight. Have to crow. Have to save Maggie. Have to save Jack. to become Peter Banning, a cutthroat merger and acquisitions lawyer. He's married to Wendy's granddaughter Moira and together they have two children, Jack and Maggie. Peter often prioritises work over his children and on a visit to Wendy in London, Captain James Hook kidnaps his children. Peter must return to Neverland with Tinkerbell to save them and with the help of the Lost Boys, learn how to be Peter Pan again in order to battle with Captain Hook and remember the value of childhood and imagination. We'll go through the cast. This is obviously an excellent cast in this movie. Loads of massive names. Obviously, we have Robin Williams as Peter Banning, aka Peter Pan. Dustin Hoffman as Captain James Hook. Julia Roberts as Tinkerbell. Bob Hoskins as Mr. Smee. Maggie Smith as Wendy. Charlie Cosmo as Jack Banning. Caroline Goodall as Moira Banning. Dante Basco as Rufio. Amber Scott as Maggie Banning. And a little cameo from Phil Collins as Inspector Good. There are also plenty of cameos in this movie. We have Gwyneth Paltrow as Young Wendy, David Crosby, Jimmy Buffett, Tony Burton and Glenn Close as members of Hook's crew and George Lucas and Carrie Fisher as the kissing couple on the bridge. Screenwriter Jim Hart's 11-year-old son Jake also appears as a lost boy and Jake is pivotal to the screenplay of Hook, as we'll find out. The screenplay of Hook was by Jim V. Hart and Malleus Scotch Marmo. The story by Jim V. Hart and Nick Castle. It was based on Peter and Wendy by J.M. Barry, and it was directed by Steven Spielberg. So Sir James Matthew Barry, aka J.M. Barry, is well known as the creator of Peter Pan and the story on which Hook is based. He was born in Scotland in 1860 and moved to London. It was in London he met his wife, Mary Ansell, and they married and moved into South Kensington in 1895. A couple of years later, Barry became acquainted with the Llewellyn Davis family, parents Arthur and Sylvia and their five sons, George, John, Peter, Michael and Nicholas. Barry would invite the Llewellyn Davis family to his Surrey cottage on holidays and grew close to Sylvia and the boys, creating stories about Peter Pan, based on and named after the young Peter Llewellyn Davis, which became the story about a boy who could fly and flew away to another land. The name Pan K 
came from the Greek god of the woodlands. Peter Pan first appeared in Barry's adult novel, The Little White Bird, in 1902, chapters 13 to 18, titled Peter Pan in Kensington Gardens, where a baby Peter flies from his nursery to Kensington Gardens. A play called Peter Pan, or The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up, debuted in 1904 and introduced the additional characters of the Darling family, Wendy John and Michael Darling, the Lost Boys, Tinkerbell and Captain James Hook. Due to the success of the play, Barry's publishers extracted these chapters and republished them as Peter Pan in Kensington Gardens in 1906. Barry then adapted the play Peter Pan, or The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up, into the novel Peter and Wendy, which was published in 1911. John and Michael Darling were named after John and Michael Llewellyn Davis, respectively, Patriarch George Darling after George Llewellyn Davis, and Mary Darling after Barry's wife Mary Ansell. Barry is also credited with popularising the name Wendy, which started as a derivative of Welsh names Gwendolyn, or Guinevere, she of the legend of King Arthur no less, and Gwendith, who was another link to Arthurian legend because Gwendith was the name of Merlin's sister. Peter and Wendy would be renamed Peter Pan and Wendy for the abridged version in 1915, and modern versions are simply published as Peter Pan. The original play's name, Peter Pan or the Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up, clearly defines the themes of the story, a child who wants to remain a child, to remain innocent and never have to assume the responsibilities of adulthood, to amass a group of lost boys who can also stay young and avoid death. Despite Peter's wish to stay young and childlike forever, he also craves a mother figure which he finds in Wendy Darling. When Arthur Llewellyn Davis died in 1907, Barry, or Uncle Jim as he was known, became a financial support system for the family, and after Sylvia's death in 1910, he became their surrogate parent along with their longtime nurse Mary Hodgson. A really lovely yet mostly fictionalised film about the story of Jay and Barry and the Llewellyn Davis family is a movie called Finding Neverland. I've not seen it in a long time, but I remember really enjoying it when I did see it. So if you are interested in more about J.M. Barry and the Llewellyn Davis family, then check out that movie. J.M. Barry gave the copyright for the world of Peter Pan to Great Ormond Street Hospital, one of the UK's most famous hospitals dedicated to the treatment of children in 1929. The hospital doesn't have the right to refuse permission or creative control, but it has a right to royalties for any performance, publication, broadcast or adaptation of the play. Of course, in the movie, Granny Wendy has a new wing named after her at the hospital for her work with orphans. And adaptations of Peter Pan, from books to stage plays to pantomimes to radio plays to comic books to live action and animated films, there's too many to list. But notable adaptations include Peter Pan in 1924, which was a silent movie adaptation, Disney's Peter Pan in 1953, which was an animated musical that is a little bit controversial nowadays for its depictions of Native Americans. Peter Pan 2003 and Pan in 2015, which were both live action movies. They were also both financial failures. Disney are also planning a live action adaptation of the animated film called Peter Pan and Wendy for a 2022 release. All of those were authorised for use by Great Ormond Street, but there are countless numbers of unauthorised films as well. Hook is not unauthorised at all, but the story of how it got to the screen is a long one. Uh, as it started in the mid-80s, Steven Spielberg, a man who needs little introduction as a director, but if you do, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and E.T., The Extraterrestrial, were all before this point, and uh, he was also finishing work on Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, uh, before he started work on a straight adaptation of the Peter Pan story in 1984. These were the stories that his mother used to read him at bedtime, 
and stories that had fascinated him throughout his childhood. Having directed a school production of Peter Pan, he resonated with the character of Peter, this idea of wanting to remain in perpetual childhood. This version of Peter Pan, which was a collaboration with Walt Disney Pictures, would closely resemble the 1924 silent film and the 1953 animated film. The film entered pre-production in 1985 with a script written by Jim V. Hart, and casting had secured Dustin Hoffman for the role of Captain Hook. Filming was set to begin in 1985, and then Steven Spielberg became a father in 1985 with the birth of his first child, Max. He wanted to be home with his son, and in 1987, he left the project completely. The movie would carry on, and a new director was found, Nick Castle, who also performed the title song for Big Trouble in Little China as part of the band The Coupe de Ville. That's episode 85, by the way. He's probably best known for playing Michael Myers in John Carpenter's Halloween, but he was also a prominent director known for The Last Starfighter and an unrelated to Peter Pan movie called The Boy Who Could Fly in 1986. Jim V. Hart got to work on a new script, inspired by his young son Jake, asking him if Peter Pan ever grew up. Hart replied that he didn't, and Jake retorted, well, what if he did? This idea formed the basis for Hawk, The Return of the Captain, with Peter Pan, a pirate in a three-piece suit, aka a corporate lawyer. In one of many nods to the real-life story, Peter Pan's namesake Peter Llewellyn Davis also grew up to be a barrister. With a new script in place and Dustin Hoffman still on board as Captain Hook, the hunt was on to find someone who could be the gruff, serious workaholic Peter Banning, as well as the childlike, fun, playful Peter Pan. Someone who keenly understood the strong connection to Neverland, quite literally, was Michael Jackson, who had eyed the role of Peter Pan for years. He was never going to be quite the right fit for a ruthless corporate lawyer, though. So instead, uh, known for both his comedic and straight-laced acting roles, was Robin Williams, the late, great Robin Williams, uh, I should say. Obviously, he was known for his starring work in Mork and Mindy, and he progressed into film with starring role in Popeye, but it was 1987's Good Morning Vietnam and 1989's Dead Poets Society, which netted him Oscar and BAFTA nominations and a Golden Globe win for Good Morning Vietnam. This made Williams more than just a comedic actor. He was an award-winning comedic actor who could also go serious. And, uh, and while it still pains me to see Peter Banning shout at his children, Robin Williams can do it and get away with it and be convincingly quite scary. He can be this convincingly scary character as well as a light and fluffy fun character. And his career over the many years of his career really reflects that. If a man can do flubber, as well as one-hour photo, he's got the range required for a grown-up, serious Peter Pan. Let's not forget, before Hook, he made Dead Poet Society, Awakenings, and The Fisher King, uh, and then he'd follow Hook with Aladdin and Mrs Doubtfire. So they are really kind of the, <laughs> the two sides of the same coin. And all the while, Hook was changing hands with studios, as in 1989, it moved from Paramount to Tristar Pictures, and its studio head, Mike Medavoy, had links to Steven Spielberg, as his first ever talent agent. After Robin Williams was cast, tensions reportedly arose between him and Dustin Hoffman with the director Nick Castle. And citing creative differences, Castle was dismissed from directing the movie, pocketing a six-figure settlement and instead retaining the story credit. Mike Medavoy, meanwhile, knew who he wanted to direct. He wanted Steven Spielberg back on the project. Uh, Spielberg, who had recently finished work on Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, which he had done to meet contractual obligations because he was still mildly disappointed at the mixed reaction to Temple of Doom. And Last Crusade turned out to be his second biggest hit at the box office after E.T. But he admitted to feeling artistically stalled at that point in his career before agreeing to return to 
what was now simply called Hook. Spielberg got to work with Jim V. Hart to rewrite the script for Hook, Marlia Scotch Marmo was hired to rewrite Captain Hook's dialogue, and an uncredited Carrie Fisher did rewrites for Tinkerbell. Julia Roberts, who was in high demand post-Pretty Woman, signed up for the role of Tinkerbell, and reportedly there were tensions on set, mainly due to Roberts' tumultuous relationship with actual lost boy Kiefer Sutherland. They had met on the set of Flatliners, and they were the golden couple of Hollywood and massive tabloid fodder. They'd planned to marry in mid-1991, but he had allegedly cheated on her, and they broke up just before their star-studded wedding. This was during Hook's hectic production, and clearly she was really going through the mill in her personal life. Reports that the crew called her Tinker Hell are, in hindsight, unfair, considering she was really going through it at the time. It didn't help that the set of Hook was a magnet for celebrity visitors, with the likes of Demi Moore, Whoopi Goldberg, Tom Cruise, Michelle Pfeiffer, and even Prince visiting the set at the time. There was open speculation as to Julia Roberts' mental health, although, this being the 90s, it wasn't called mental health, it was called emotional fragility. Uh, it's worth noting that Rufio himself, Dante Basco, has nothing but praise and adoration for Roberts and their time together on Hook, and basically that she was a consummate professional on set at all times. You'd hope nowadays that a young actress, because bear in mind she was only 23 when she made Hook, uh, you would hope that a an actress now would be given more emotional support on set. Steven Spielberg would go on to defend her from the media backlash. And this all goes towards basically how differently the media treat men and women, because all of the unfair press for this movie surrounded Julia Roberts. And honestly, they should have just left the poor woman alone to do her job. But anyway, I digress. Uh, so filming began for Hawk on February the 19th, 1991, and it was a demanding shoot for all involved. It occupied nine sound stages at Sony Pictures Studios in Culver City, California. And while Steven Spielberg laments those practical sets, I think they are bangerang. The Lost Boys set was on stage 30 and stage 27 housed the full-sized Jolly Roger and Pirate Wharf. And talking of full-sized or life-sized in, in the case of Julia Roberts, so Julia Roberts did a lot of work solo, so she didn't really interact with a lot of other actors on set because a lot of her stuff was done in life-size sets, including an incredibly detailed doll's house, which is just remarkable. The use of practical effects really made this movie. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I love it. And if you are a regular listener to this podcast, you will know how much I love practical effects and practical sets. I love the way practical stuff looks and feels on screen. And while Spielberg has claimed he'd prefer to have done it with live action character work in a completely digital set, uh, this is what he told Entertainment Weekly in 2011, I am so glad that he didn't do that and he couldn't do that at the time because... The sets of Hook are incredible. The level of detail and colour is astounding. Everything about the practical nature of Neverland is outstanding, truly. I genuinely believe that Steven Spielberg is clouded by his dislike of this movie and can't see it as being the truly brilliant, unique and interesting take on Peter Pan. I hope that one day he does see it. And I know that he has said that one day he hopes that he will see this movie and like it. I really hope so, because I feel like there's a lot to digest in Hook. And like I say, Hook is not without its problems, but I think there's so much to love in Hook. I am a big, massive fan of this movie. Actors trained for months for sword fights. Dante Basco, in particular, 
did all his own sword stunts, including the shot where his sword meets Peter's face. And this shot was filmed backwards so that no injuries could occur. Uh, and the line that Basco reads, he also said this backwards as well. So that when they played it, it played it forwards, if you know what I mean. The original budget for Hook was $48 million. But as the production went over its scheduled 76-day schedule for 40 days... I don't, scheduled 76-day schedule is not really a thing, is it? But there we go, I'm making it a thing. So it went over its schedule by 40 days, basically is what I'm saying. And the budget also increased, therefore, to reported $70 million. And it seems like Steven Spielberg moved at a slower pace than his other productions. And this was maybe because he felt uncomfortable with what he was doing. He's gone on to state that he felt like a fish out of water on Hook. He had no confidence in the script, that he was confident in the first act and the epilogue because they were basically set in the real world. But everything in Neverland was a real struggle for him. The way that I see this movie is people don't see it for what it truly is. I have many theories about Hook and I want to talk about them in a little bit, but I feel like this movie is a lot deeper than a lot of people give it credit for. And whether that was Steven Spielberg's intention, I'm not entirely certain. But I really do feel that Steven Spielberg didn't need to be worried about the Neverland scenes because they're Neverland. It doesn't matter. The realism of Neverland doesn't matter. It's all about fantasy. It's all about imagination. And, and the fantasy and the imagination just comes through in the Neverland scenes completely for me. You know, and I'm going to talk about the length of the movie in a little bit. Yes, it is long. Yes, it does take a long time for Peter Banning to become Peter Pan. But there's a reason why that is the way that it is. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is now the movie is called Hook. Um, but if you look at the movie, there's actually very little on the character of Captain Hook. And I, I have a theory as to why this is. The movie is called Hook because it's about Hook, but not in the way that it's actually about Hook. Because I believe it's called Hook in the sense that Peter Pan became the one thing that he didn't want to be. And I really feel that with Hook, that Peter Pan grew up to become Captain Hook. That's the reason the movie is called Hook. The way Jack describes to Granny Wendy about things like how his dad blows people out of the water. And, and Wendy even says, Peter, you've become a pirate. Peter is Hook. He grew up to be Hook. And he needs to remember where he came from and reignite that childhood innocence. Because if he doesn't, he will inadvertently cause his own children to grow up too fast and for them to become a hook. So it's like a perpetual cycle of abuse in a weird way. There are some very strange adult themes in this movie that I'm going to be talking about at the end, but Peter Pan grew up to become hook. And so if he doesn't do something, his children are going to grow up. Specifically, Jack is going to grow up to become a hook. Maggie Smith is always excellent. Maggie Smith, you can guarantee a movie will contain an excellent Maggie Smith performance. And the old age makeup is astonishing. For a long time, I believed Maggie Smith just stayed the same age because I knew her mostly from Hook because I watched this movie a lot when I was a kid. Uh, she was only 57 years old when she made this movie, but she was made up to look like a 90 year old woman. And so to me, she's kind of remained the same for decades. She's never aged any more than that. And obviously now she is almost that age and she still looks exactly the same as Granny Wendy. And that's really a truly remarkable show of good makeup. Another thing that I wanted to talk about was the partnership of Hook and Smee, because I think that their partnership is absolutely excellent. I love the way that they 
play off each other. Um, and that partnership has intentional gay undertones. I never picked up on it when I was a kid. I pick up on it a lot now. And this was because Dustin Hoffman and Bob Hoskins, very early on, decided to play Hook and Smee as partners, as lovers. And that's why, you know, Hook is so reliant on Smee and Smee is so reliant on Hook. And I want to talk about Robin Williams a bit later and I'm going to try not to cry. But um, this movie also includes the late Bob Hoskins who was also a man who could easily mix serious roles with comedy. Uh, who Framed Roger Rabbit still is so special to me for the same reason as Hook in so many ways. And to add to the mix, like a glorious camp scenery tune, Dustin Hoffman as Hook, it just looks like everyone is having the best time ever making this movie, despite the questionable content. If this movie wasn't a family film, it would be a movie about child abduction, child grooming, child soldiers and marrying the granddaughter of the woman you loved who took you in and raised you before finding your parents it's all a bit sinister and a bit incestuous <laughs> in a weird way um there's a lot of kind of really weird almost sexual undertones between robin and granny wendy that are a little bit odd now if you kind of watch the movie as a grown-up I can understand if you watch this movie as an adult. I don't think that you would immediately appreciate it as you would if you were a child. I think if you're a child and you watch this movie and you grow up with this movie, I do think that you get you get something from it as a child. And then as you grow into an adult, you appreciate the adultness of this movie and the, the themes of this movie a bit more. You've kind of got to take away the child abduction and child grooming and child soldiers and all of that. Because yes, those are very serious topics and they are, it's all, you know, terrible things that you don't really want to be thinking about in a family film. But that's just like one layer of many, many layers in Hook that I think a lot of people miss. And the, the grooming of Jack in particular is obviously quite worrying. Because Jack gets the brunt of his father's anger. Uh, and Maggie doesn't. And presumably that's because Maggie is younger. Uh, maybe it's because she's a girl and Jack's a boy. There were a lot of angry dad tropes or workaholic dad tropes in 90s movies. And a lot of movies in particular had very kind of sexist connotations between boy children and girl children. That you could shout at a boy child but you couldn't shout at a girl child. That sort of thing. And... I kind of feel like this movie had the focuses on Jack, maybe more so because Jack is a boy and Jack is therefore more susceptible to the promises of Hook. The idea that Hook will be a better father to him because he will go to his ball games, he will listen to him, with Jack not knowing that the more time he spends with Hook, the more that he'll forget his family. Hook actively turns Jack against Peter in the way most abusers will, by claiming that, you know, love is about actions, not words. By Peter not playing with his children, not being with his children, not prioritising his children, that Peter is a bad father. It's not particularly untrue, actually. Peter is not a terrible father. Peter has just forgotten who he is. He's forgotten what life is all about. He's forgotten the joy of parenthood. That life isn't about these five billion dollar business deals. Really, he's just a scared, lonely, confused man who's forgotten what it's like to be human. And Hook is kind of the counterbalance to that idea, because before Peter becomes Peter Pan again, 
Hawk is almost suicidal and thinks that life has no adventure. He only believes that life has meaning as soon as Peter becomes Peter Pan. And so there's this kind of really weird, strange dichotomy between these two characters that keeps coming up to the forefront of this movie that I think a lot of people forget that you can't have Peter Pan without Captain Hook and you can't have Captain Hook without Peter Pan, despite the fact that this movie is actually about Peter Pan as Captain Hook. <laughs> Which, yeah, that, I mean, that that's just my theory. But anyway, basically, what this movie is trying to tell us is that the greatest adventures come from spending time with your children by being their hero and by protecting them and helping them grow. It's basically about finding your happy thought. And I want to talk about my happy thought. I want to talk about Robin Williams because Robin Williams has always meant a great deal to me. Growing up, he was the main actor that I watched in pretty much everything. I've spoken in the past on a little episode that I did on Aladdin about how much I love Aladdin uh, mainly for Robin Williams. And I compared that 1992 Aladdin movie to the more recent remake uh, and basically compared how Robin Williams took on the genie to how Will Smith took on the genie. To me, Robin Williams will always be the genie. <laughs> there is no one who could do the genie like he could. Where Robin Williams was concerned, I just loved his physical comedy, his zest for life, the way that he could be ridiculous on screen and just bring everything to his roles and just the way that he made people smile and made people laugh. His death in 2014, it really, really affected me. It still makes me really sad. And I've not, apart from that episode, which is a very small episode on Aladdin, I've not done any Robin Williams movies on this podcast. For a reason, really, because I still find a world without Robin Williams to be less of a world, in a way. And I have contemplated whether I love this movie because of Robin Williams or because of the nostalgia surrounding it. Maybe my nostalgia goggles cloud my ability to be objective. I've questioned why Steven Spielberg doesn't like it. And then I've questioned why do I, when so many others see these huge flaws, including Spielberg himself. And honestly, after all of that, I realise it doesn't matter why I love it. And I don't need to be objective about it. It's okay that I love Hook. It makes me grin like a Cheshire cat. It makes me cry, especially in those pure moments of pathos, such as when one of the Lost Boys finally sees Peter Pan in Peter Banning. And that scene is, I mean, it's a beautiful scene. It's got some beautiful John Williams music. I'm going to talk about the music later because the score in this movie is just one of John Williams' best scores, I swear. Um, but that scene in particular is especially hard to watch now because you see a man like Robin Williams, so seemingly happy and content with his life and career, so outwardly able to make people smile, but within him he had some awful demons. And they stemmed from a diagnosis of Louis body disease, which was a form of dementia, and that eventually made him believe that his life was not worth living. Robin Williams was so many characters, so many influential people, and he meant so much to so many people. His work was and is a privilege. I don't know anyone who's ever uttered a bad word about Robin Williams, anyone who's ever worked with him. Even Steven Spielberg, when he met Robin Williams on the set of this movie, they became lifelong friends uh, from the making of Hook. He was just a nice, normal guy who made people laugh. He's inadvertently become the best advocate for mental health and suicide awareness. For that very reason, we didn't know his suffering because he never let us see it. 
but invisible suffering is still suffering. And so if you're listening to this and you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, please speak to someone. You can call the Samaritans free here in the UK on 116123. If you're in the US, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline on 1-800-273-8255. Both of those lines are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. For international listeners, please, please reach out to your local suicide prevention charity. There are people who can listen to you and help you. The world is never a better place without you in it. And I just really wanted to make that clear that the love that I have for this movie is purely centred around this wonderful, wonderful man who was taken from us far too soon. There's kind of no easy way to segue from talking about suicide prevention to talking about the obligatory Keanu reference. So this is probably going to be the worst segue in the world and I truly apologise. I don't mean to cheapen what I've just said by kind of just saying, oh, and by the way, I'm going to go into the obligatory Keanu reference now. I don't know how Robin Williams would do it, but I guess he'd just make like a really funny joke or something. Unfortunately, I am not as funny as Robin Williams. So I'm just going to jump straight into the obligatory Keanu reference. The obligatory Keanu reference is a part of this podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And sometimes it's really easy and sometimes it's really difficult. This was really easy, actually. Um, I mean, you could kind of say, well, maybe Keanu is a lost boy because obviously he doesn't age. But Hook was written by Jim B. Hart. He would go on to write Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, which contained a memorable and not as bad as everyone makes out to be performance from Keanu Reeves as Jonathan Harker. Um, It's important to note that he's credited as Jim V. Hart for this movie, but as James V. Hart for that one. But it is the same guy. I mentioned earlier about the music for Hook and that is probably one of the strongest things about the movie and I think everyone can agree that the score for Hook is outstanding. It is John Williams and obviously John Williams is the master. He's worked with Steven Spielberg so many times. He was originally brought on board in the early 80s and this was obviously when the film was gearing up to be a full-on musical. He wrote eight original songs, including We Don't Want to Grow Up and When You're Alone, the latter of which would go on to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Song. A limited edition version of the score would be remastered with alternate and unused material, and that was released in 2012. Speaking of release, so the movie Hook was released on the 11th of December 1991, and it hit number one at the box office, where it stayed for four weeks, and held the number one spot against releases of The Last Boy Scout, Father of the Bride, The Prince of Tides, as well as Disney's Beauty and the Beast, which was still riding high in the charts after several weeks. Uh, I mentioned the $70 million budget. Despite this $70 million budget, Hook would go on to gross $120 million in North America and a total of $301 million worldwide. Outside of the Pirates of the Caribbean films, it's the most lucrative pirate-themed movie ever made, and it's also the fourth highest-grossing movie worldwide of 1991. And yet, it was still declared a financial disappointment for the studio, mainly due to its overshadowing by Beauty and the Beast, which obviously was a phenomenal success for Disney, uh, made on a much smaller budget. Terminator 2 Judgment Day was also a massive hit the same year, and come awards season... 
both Terminator 2 Judgment Day and Beauty and the Beast would steal a lot of Hook's thunder. I mentioned that a lot of people don't like Hook and I mean that's pretty obvious when you look at the critical reception because critics were not kind to Hook and they are still not kind to Hook. Roger Ebert, I think, missed the point completely when he stated that Spielberg should have done a straight-up telling of the Peter Pan story, stating it wasn't original enough. But, you know, I guess I'm completely biased when it comes to people saying bad things about Hook because I genuinely think this movie is magical and I really don't know what Roger Ebert was on at the time of writing. Maybe some hallucinogenic drugs, I don't know. But clearly he and I did not watch the same movie when it came to awards. So... One thing that Hook did have in its favour was it earned five Oscar nominations. It was nominated for Best Production Design, Best Costume Design, Best Visual Effects, Best Makeup and Best Song. It would win none of those. <laughs> so it would lose Best Production Design and Best Costume Design to Bugsy, Best Visual Effects and Best Makeup to Terminator 2 Judgment Day and Best Original Song to Beauty and the Beast. But it still got five Oscar nominations. So technically... It's still kind of worthy. There is no sequel to Hook. I don't think there will ever be a sequel to Hook. Um, but Dante Basco revealed in 2020 that he was working on an animated Rufio prequel. And let's be honest, if you wanted to be a lost boy, you wanted to be Rufio. Because Rufio was and remains the coolest of all of the lost boys. And speaking of the lost boys, they reunited for a 25th anniversary photo shoot in 2016. And they all still look the same. It's remarkable. It, I mean, it's remarkable that people grow up and still look the same as they did when they were a child. I mean, genetics is crazy. Moving over to social media thoughts. So obviously, I always start with the patrons of this podcast. And we've got a couple of patron thoughts for Hook. So we'll start with the Midnight Myth podcast. And they say... We covered Hook over the summer and dwelt heavily on the Freudian aspects of the film that can't be ignored. I consider this a flawed masterpiece. It may lean a little heavily on cliché, but it's filled to the brim with nostalgia, a heartbreaking performance by the great Robin Williams, the hysterical dynamic of Dustin Hoffman and Bob Hoskins, and a clear labour of love by Spielberg. It's bangerang. To live will be an awfully big adventure. And we also have Derek from The Midnight Myth, who adds... An amazing cast, great comedy, beautiful sets, baseball, pirates and the legendary Robin Williams. What's not to love? To live will be an adventure. And having listened to the Midnight Miss episode on Hook when it was released, I can safely say that, as always, it's a fantastic look into the movie. Of course, I'm going to link to that episode in the show notes. But if you're not listening to Laurel, Derek and sweet baby Arthur, who's still only a few months old and still, you know, one of the best podcasters in the world, then you need to be doing so. So please listen to the Midnight Myth because they are awesome. Um, and we also have a perennial lost boy of verbal diorama, Andy from Geek Salad, who says, and this is shocking, I can go on record and state that I'm not a fan of Hook. Outside of Dustin Hoffman, I feel the entire film is miscast, including Robin Williams, who really isn't given the opportunity to show his comic range, as he's weighed down by being the too focused on work dad, a 90s trope that I absolutely loathed. The budget is very obviously on the display throughout the entire movie, but it's far too satisfied with itself to allow for any joy, and far too much of morality play to find any joy in. Now, usually, I give a little plug for my wonderful patrons. However, I'm not... <laughs> 
no, of course I'm going to give you a plug, Andy, even though you don't like Hook. Uh, although, to be fair, Andy and I rarely disagree on something. But I appreciate that Hook is not a perfect movie and Hook does have some problems. Um, but I disagree wholeheartedly with your comment. <laughs> So anyway, Andy is from the Geek Salad podcast. We also have Mike from Geek Salad who adds... There is so much fun and enjoyment to be had in this movie. This was the first movie I ever saw without my parents in the theatre with my best friend at the time and I loved it. Williams, Roberts and Hoskins are fantastic. Hoffman is a scene-chewingly perfect Captain Hook. And I hasten to add that at least someone at Geek Salad has some taste. Winky Smiley. Geek Salad, they cover all sorts of things, movies, music, TV shows, pretty much anything geek and salady. Uh, although they haven't really done a salad episode. I was expecting like, you know, lettuce, tomato, cucumber episode. It hasn't happened yet. Have a listen. They are hundreds of episodes, like 200 plus episodes to uh, devour, essentially. So you can find them in your podcast app of choice. I will also link to Geek Salad in the show notes too. We'll move over to the main part of social media. We'll go over to Twitter, first of all, and we'll start with at 100thingspod, who says, For me, Hook and Smee are the standouts in this. The creative decision was made for them to play it like two old queens, and it's perfect. I've also got to mention the Ocean-published SNES tie-in game, which was gorgeous. At underscore son of Ben underscore said, One of my most favourite films. Flopped when it launched and was massively over budget, apparently. Also featured one of, if not the biggest soundstage sets in history. At OSW Podcast One said, One of my favourite childhood memories is this movie. At IDYP underscore podcast said, This is a favourite of most of the IDYP gang. At Big Rob Mac said, I absolutely adore this movie and while I'm all for film Twitter, I've only recently learned that this film does indeed have haters. For the life of me, I don't understand why. And honestly, neither do I. At Prestige Podcast said, We did an episode on it a couple of years ago. But in short, it's ace. It perfectly captures the excitement, creativity and abject terror of childhood. At Oral underscore MFC said, Don't you dare try to stop me this time, Smee. Try to stop me. One of the... <laughs> sorry, that's, that's my impression. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> one of the best and darkest comedic exchanges in a kid's film. Hoskins and Hoffman have such great chemistry that I enjoy them more than the main plot. Moving over to Instagram, we have at Friendly Sparpod who said, I grew up on Robin Williams movies. When he was tragically taken from this world, the first thing I wanted to do was watch this movie because this is what started it all. Undoubtedly one of his best performances and certainly the best telling of the Peter Pan story in my opinion. Bangarang. And finally, at Film at 50 podcast, just gave three hearts, which, I mean, I think that sums it up perfectly, really. Nothing over on Facebook this time round. Um, but as always, a massive thank you to everyone who gives their comments, but mainly for loving Hook, because it's so wonderful that so many people really love this movie, apart from Andy from Geek Salad. After the social media thoughts, I always kind of give a little bit of a summary of, of how I feel about the movie. And it's like, how, how do I summarise Hook? Because there's so much that this movie means to me as a person. But I think ultimately this really is a movie about finding your happy thoughts. And I think as adults, we're conditioned to forget childhood things and to be grown up, you know, be responsible, be the Peter Banning. But there's a lot to be said for just going back to your 
happy thoughts your or your happy place for example whether that's in neverland or just somewhere else and just thinking happy thoughts happy thoughts make you fly it's never quite that easy of course it's not like we can go back in time and tell robin williams to just think happy thoughts to avoid his suicide because you know mental health doesn't work like that it's never as easy to just think happy thoughts but that's kind of what this movie means to me this movie is my happy thought because i can go to this movie and it will just make me smile so much despite the questionable content um and despite the fact it's of its mixed message i have a lot of love for this movie that's kind of only really grown as i've kind of gone from watching it as a child to watching it as an adult um i appreciate this movie so much more um i don't have children i kind of feel like having children is a massive adventure really it is you know you've got to be grown up about it you've got to be responsible obviously you've got to be responsible to have a child but it's also supposed to be an adventure it's supposed to be a magical time you're supposed to show this little human being that yes there are dangers in the world and yes you need to avoid danger on their behalf for them but not at the expense of showing them adventure and showing them joy and showing them love and i think this movie is is kind of really about that it's about passing on your simple joy in life to the next generation and the the love of play and the love of imagination and all of the things that we forget as grown-ups that's the sort of thing we need to be passing on because children aren't children for very long and so this is my go-to peter pan movie this is the only peter pan movie that i will regularly watch it's the only peter pan movie that i would recommend to anyone who wanted a peter pan movie like i say this movie is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination but that's the point it's the stretch of the imagination it's not about the end of the journey it's not about the end of the story it's about how you get there it's about the story of getting there and that's kind of the point of hook really to me and if you can get there by thinking a happy thought well it just makes the journey so much more fun and so much more worthwhile and maybe i hope someone who's listening to this who never really liked hook maybe i've helped change your mind a little bit because i really do believe that this movie is better than a lot of people think and if you're listening to this and you still hate hook well that's absolutely fine too <laughs> genuinely it, it really doesn't matter to me if people don't like hook um the only thing that matters to me is that i love it um but anyway thank you for listening as always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Hook, even the bad ones. <laughs> if you do like this episode or any episode, please, if you could take a moment to leave a rating or a review wherever you found this episode, maybe on something like Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, that would be fantastic. Or alternatively, you could tell your friends about this podcast and you could help it grow. If you like this episode on Hook, you might also like the following very, very early episodes of this podcast. They are so early, in fact, that they don't even have the same theme song. Um, but I've mentioned them all so far, sort of, in a way. Episode 4, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? 
because of Bob Hoskins and his wonderful, wonderful performance in that movie. It's genuinely one of the best movies ever made for so many reasons. Uh, it's a technical marvel. It will never, ever be made again. And I adore Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So that is episode four. Episode nine, the comparisons of the two Aladdins. That was a very short episode. I'd just seen the 2019 Aladdin when I did that. I haven't listened to it since then, so I don't know if it's any good. But I briefly mention Robin Williams in that episode and his performance as a genie is something else. It's, it's an incredible performance by Robin Williams. And episode 10, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. Because, obviously, it's another pirate movie and um, it's also really, really fun. But otherwise, apart from those three, I was really struggling to find good companion episodes for Hook. Because Hook is very unique uh, in so many ways. But, you know, give me feedback on my recommendations. Let me know if you think I got it right. So, next episode of the podcast. Did you get her cappuccino? No, I thought you were getting it. Did you place her magazines on her desk just as she likes them? Did you call Gabbana about the spring fashion show? Can you spell Gabbana? I actually can't. I actually had to check the spelling in my notes of Gabbana because I spelled it wrong. So I would be fired by her immediately. Gird your loins because Miranda Priestley is going to be appearing on Verbal Diorama. It's, I mean, it's the biggest guest I'm ever going to have on this podcast, everyone. It's Miranda Priestley. She is not just the biggest name in fashion. She is fashion. <laughs> so uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, it is The Devil Wears Prada. And that episode is coming next week. That's all. And obviously, if you don't get that, then that's a line from The Devil Wears Prada. You can follow me if you want. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. I also have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Verbal Diorama. I am always very grateful to have the support of some wonderful patrons who really, really help keep this podcast going from increased hosting costs to new equipment. I mean, I, I'm so grateful to the following people. They are Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Matt, Trevor and Scott. And they certainly don't belong in the boo box. I do have a merch store. It's teespring.com slash stores slash verbal diorama. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, it's verbaldiorama at gmail.com. Or you can go to verbaldiorama.com to the brand new website and fill out the brand new contact form, which is very swish and very cool. And also, as always, you can pop over to filmstories.co.uk. You can check out the new issue of the magazine and um, you can read plenty of web articles that I've written, including countless podcast recommendations and a feature on Greece too, which I'm still incredibly proud of. And finally, to live... To live would be an awfully big adventure. Bye.